Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, this is the Tennis in Vegas podcast and I am your host Andre and uh, today I'm here only with Owen. Ivanshka um, couldn't be here today so we are going to let the uh, big conversations about Federer coming back on tour and uh, Rotterdam and like other tournaments that happened this past week to um, record tomorrow. Uh, so we're just here to talk about other stuff and I don't know, maybe geek out about tennis for a little bit and talk about records and stuff and um Interestingly enough, uh, we are going to be touching on um, Novak Djokovic's new record at 311 weeks at number one, which supports um, Owen's uh, claim in the first podcast that we did together about the GOAT um, debate, where he was leaning towards Djokovic and I was leaning towards Nadal. Um, And this basically supports even more of his argument. So... What do you think, Owen, about this record? Even you don't have to talk about Go if you don't want to. I was just saying that it was it was kind of like a funny thing that this kind of like came came full circle, pretty much. No, yeah, I, I totally agree. I actually listened back to that podcast a couple of months ago, and it was fun to sort of hear how we were disagreeing and stuff. I think um, it, it's it's incredible. I was saying to you before we started, three hundred eleven weeks is just over six years. I think if my math is right, it's it's well, you, you said this. It's hard to wrap your mind around. He's He's been number one when the tour has been incredibly strong. He's dominated the tour for stretches. He totally deserves this record. It's unbelievable. Yeah, and the the other thing that I, I was I was finding interesting about it is, is that even though there's like a lot of uh, issues with the ranking systems right now because of the the, the pandemic and whatnot, um, Djokovic didn't actually get um, seriously harmed by it. And he, even with uh, the regular pointage, um, he would have been number one regardless last year. And I'm pretty sure yeah. he would have still been number one this year. So um, there's a bunch of tweets online that you can check about, like people who are making the, the, the rankings as if there was no pandemic. And I'm pretty sure it still shows Djokovic a number one. Um, so, yeah. I, yeah. I, I think without the ranking freeze, he would have even more weeks, actually. Yeah. Like, um, w- w- yeah. Without the tour freeze, he would have like 350 yeah, yeah. something weeks. The, no, that, that was yeah. too much. I, yeah. I, I think 333 or something, yeah, like something another like 20 weeks. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, that's a that's a pretty massive change. Although, like, to, to be fair, I agree with the ranking freeze, like, uh, in no weeks because there was no tennis, right? So, like, why would you have weeks yeah, in number I, one I without tennis? So, it doesn't really make sense. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Yeah. Um, so I, I guess a question that popped into my head was, what in Djokovic's time at number one, what do you think was his his signature win, his most impressive win, maybe while he's been at number one in a match or a, like a, in, a in, yeah, yeah, in a match in his whole career. Oh, a pretty significant win. I think it's his most important win. I guess 
I, I, I would love to say Nadal 2015 uh, Roland Garros, mm. but uh, it's either it's either 2016 uh, final at Roland Garros or um, 2012 Australian Open. I think it's probably his most significant win of his of his entire career, and probably Roland Garros because obviously it was the Islam that he was missing in after falling short so many years, including. The year before 2016, where he mm. lost to Varinka in basically a sad final that he played, <laughs> and uh, so that's a, his most significant win overall. But I guess in the microcosmos of a match, I would say 2012 against Nadal is probably his most um, important win because he he had like two Australian Opens at that time. Uh, he was going for his. Third Grand Slam in a row, I think. Yeah, yeah. And uh, he was facing Nadal, who 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 had not beaten him in the six previous finals that he, he they faced mm. each other at. So I think 2012 should Nadal have won it. I think the landscape would have been a little bit different nowadays. I think I don't know if Djokovic would have been able to uh, win as many Grand Slams as he did. I don't know how that affected his his mentality towards the game, but it was definitely um, a big follow-up from an immense season that was 2011. Because it's, you, you see many players going in for like a special seasons that they play like one season that's amazing, and then they kind of fall short for the rest of their careers. And yeah. it could have been the case for Djokovic in 2012, right? But he wasn't really like that, so he kept dominating. So I feel I think that one win was... Um, probably his most important one. What do you What do you think? Yeah, I, I agree. I I almost want to say 2018 Wimbledon against Nadal, but he was number 12 when that happened. Even though he played a, like a number one. Um, mm. but I I totally agree with you. I think um, for significance, probably 2016 Roland Garros final because that was the one he didn't have, and for impressiveness, 2012 Australia because I think even though after that he wouldn't win another major for a year. Yeah. Um, I think. I think that was really the match that showed how far he had come mentally and physically. Mm. Like against against that opponent, I think to to win in that long of a match and to come back from four two thirty fifteen down in the fifth set, I feel like that match proved that he could do anything on a tennis court. And I think if he loses that, maybe he's not the men's player of the decade in the two thousand tens. And I think maybe he wouldn't have the same aura that he has today. So I, I agree with you on. Mm. I, I feel like it's almost the signature win of his entire career. Yeah, I feel like that 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 that's the one, and just because I would say probably I was thinking when you asked me this question, I was thinking also 2019 Wimbledon uh, mm. because it, it was a ridiculous win. But like at that point, the difference yeah. is that Djokovic was already Djokovic at that point. He had like whatever, yeah, um, exactly, 16 Grand Slams, I think, and uh, yeah, I I think that one was his 16th, so he had 15 when yeah, he true, won yeah, it was his 16th Grand Slam, so. But, you know, he, he had already broken uh, Sampras' record by then. So mm-hmm. he was just big three dominating Grand Slams at that point. So it was impressive because he was Federer on the other side. Federer was playing ridiculously well. And Djokovic just kind yeah. of... It, it's probably his clutch signature, that match. But um, I, I agree. But overall, as in battle-wise and just quality of play, and as you said it, like just fitness and, and everything else-wise, is I think 2012 Australian Open... It was the 
uh, almost almost like the the opening of his uh, dominance years, like the opening of Novak Djokovic as the world number one in a sense. Even though 2011 was basically like that, but yeah. Yeah, yeah I think 2011 he dominated, and that was sort of the sign that okay, this is a great player, but I feel like 2012 Australia was what turned him into a legend. I feel like before that, he was great. He was dominating the tour. But before before that, he was almost just a number one, and after that, he became a legend. Um, And 2019 Wimbledon popped into my head as well, but I feel like, I, I think, in a way... It was almost nothing he hadn't done before. He had saved match points against Federer before. Yeah. He had already beaten him in five on center court 2014. And so, like, it was it was insane. It was, even though he had saved match points before, we obviously didn't see it coming. But I think, in the grand scheme of things, maybe, like, combined mentally and physically, 2000 Australia might have been tougher. Hmm. In but, the, yeah, go ahead. But but yeah, I, I was just gonna say it's insane at how many how many times we can look back at these matches with Djokovic. Like uh, he is he's a six and one record against Federer and Nadal in five setters. And I was thinking uh, a couple of days ago he was in bad positions in most of those, mm. and yet he's won all of them except one. And the one he lost, he arguably should have won. So it's it, it's just insane how many of these tight matches he's played on the biggest stages, and that he's come out on top of. Yeah. And uh, now that you now that you mentioned it, like, just if you flip that around, like, what do you think was probably his 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 toughest defeat, like his toughest match that he lost, like for mm-hmm. him to take? Not necessarily that he like got beaten down, like for example, uh, Roland Garros twenty twenty. It was probably like yeah. a, a big beat down from Nadal, but like, um, as in his his toughest defeat, the one that he felt like he maybe should have won or. He should have done mm-hmm. better. Like, what was his his worst defeat? I, I would say, like in the past decade. Hmm. I think. I feel like I have to go with 2013 Roland Garros semifinal yeah. because I think t- the 2015 final was tough, but that was Bavrinka. That wasn't Nadal, mm. and so I think I think beating that strong of a version of of Nadal on Philippe Chatrier would have been as big of a confidence boost as it gets, really. I think there's no doubt he would have beaten Ferrer in the final. Mm. And he and he and he was in position to win that match, steal it really, because he was he came down he came back from a breakdown in sets two and four. So so I, I think I would go with that one. Yeah. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Like I feel like um there was definitely the match that he, he felt like he <laughs> He probably like wasn't really the same a little bit after that, like a couple of weeks maybe. Like mm-hmm. thinking about the yeah. the famous uh, net touch, the that point that he lost, like when the smash and the classic image of Nadal just pointing at him. Yeah, you just you just see how how Nadal knew that, you know, it it was a, it was a tough opponent, and like Nadal definitely didn't want to lose, and he was like gonna take everything he yeah. could about it. And, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And as much as like it may feel like it's you know. Like that image is kind of awkward because you just kind of feel like, oh yeah, it's like he would have won the point anyway. So like, whatever, fair play and stuff like that. But no, he's in. It's in the rules. So like, Nadal just put yeah. it up like, hey, he cannot touch the net like until the point is over. So like, yeah. I mean, it. It's definitely like in, in those moments where like you can you may want to let emotions take control, but like you know, like you look at Nadal and like you know, there's no arguments against that. Like he was definitely playing the game right, and it's fair and square. That Djokovic lost yeah. the point then and eventually lost the match. And uh, yeah, yeah, and I I think an interesting thing about that match that maybe not everyone knows is that 
Djokovic actually saved the break point that came after that point with a huge forehand. But then after that one, he made two errors and got broken. Mm. It wasn't... So, so the net touch didn't lead directly, directly to the break. It took a couple more points for it to come. And then after that, they're on even terms and Nadal played better for the rest of the match. But it is it is really crazy how fine those margins are. Like, it's... You can look at a match that lasted four hours and 37 minutes, and you can pinpoint that one moment where he got too close to the net, didn't let it bounce, and that... I I won't say explicitly that that made the difference. If he had made that, he would have won, but I think there's a good argument for it, so... Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it you cannot say exactly, like, oh yeah, like, this point was the, the one that, like, won the match or whatever. It's the same, yeah. like, for 2012, like, when Nadal, like, pushed that one backhand wide on, uh, you know, I think it was 15-30 or 30-15? Uh, 30-15. 30-15, yeah, would have made yeah. it 40-15. You would have made it 40-15, so, like, you would have been 5-2 up if you won the next two points. And he pushed it wide. So, like, you could say, oh, yeah, maybe that was the, the one that turned, that was the turning point of the match, which probably was. But, like, it doesn't mean that, yeah. like, Nadal didn't keep fighting um, or things like that. Yeah, you know, exactly. It, it's just, like, the same. Like, some something may shake things up, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be over. Um, Casing point mm-hmm. Djokovic coming down from match points down to, to, to win matches, yeah. right? So, it doesn't necessarily it, exactly. mean the world you know it, it although it, it is a small margin so you take what you can get and like you have to like mm-hmm. play point by point and literally just kind of live in that micro microcosmos of like the match which is like the point and that's it um and if that was a match that i'm pretty sure Djokovic would probably would have won back to at least try better was definitely 2020 Roland Garros. Not that Nadal wasn't I, playing yeah. amazing. I'm pretty sure Djokovic thinks like in this way, just like, oh, well, maybe I should have played better and I would have probably still have lost, but I wish I could have still given him a little bit more of a run for his money because <laughs> that was just... He's, he, Nadal was just team rolling over him. So, yeah, there mm-hmm. was a, one of his worst defeats as world number one is in how badly he was dominated in that match. Yeah, I I agree. I was disappointed at how he played that. I think it was the most important match he had played in several years because it would have given him the the double career slam if he had won, but um he just wasn't at his best and you can't you can't play Nadal at Roland Garros when you're not at your best. So I I think that's one that he'd like to have back as well, not necessarily because of the result, but because of how offsided it was. So I agree with you there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because I I, yeah. I still don't think that he would have won that match. Like, honestly, like, Nadal's mm. just but way I, I, too much I think much he on probably fire. should have won a set, at yeah, least. Exactly, he, he, yeah, exactly. He took sets in for three years in a row against him. Even even 2008, he had a set point at the third set, and that was arguably the best version of Nadal. So we know Djokovic can have success against him yeah, at Roland Garros. Sure. So, yeah. 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 Um. So I, I guess another question I have is, if we narrow it down, what do you think is Djokovic's most impressive shot as number one? A, a singular shot. A singular shot, like as in his backhand or forehand. No, like like a specific point, like a winner or um oh. or a forcing shot. As in, like a like one thing that happened. Yeah, like a match point save or something. Yeah. Um. There's this. There's this one. Uh, this one point that I always remember, like from Djokovic, and I'm, I think it was 2011 uh, ATP Finals, like against Federer in the final. Like it was just, it was on match point, it wasn't his match point. Uh, t- 2012, yeah. 2012, yeah. yeah. I, it was either or. So he, he just like, Federer hits like a, like a good enough approach. You know, it wasn't, it mm. wasn't perfect in, by any means. Like he, if it was perfect, you know, the ball wasn't, wouldn't have come back. But like yeah. it, it was, it was good enough that for, lots of players you would have produced at least a chance for for a 
for a uh, for a volley. But Djokovic just yeah. slides the backhand, classic backhand uh, down the line, and just mm-hmm. gets that passing shot. And there's obviously tons of uh, tons of other shots that are, that you could think of, like. But this one is definitely the one that comes to mind, like one of his most um, Djokovic-like um, ways to win a match and like just to steal mm-hmm. a point away. What about you? What do you, what do you think? Uh, I, I remember that shot you're talking about. I think Federer did hit a pretty good approach shot inside out forehand, yeah. but like you said, Djokovic just hit a clean pass and backhand down the line. It was incredible thought. Great match as well. Um, I think most important, maybe the, the return, uh, winner us open against oh, yeah, Federer. for sure. Um, but I think if we're looking at his match points as well, I think, uh, the one at the 2013 Australian Open against Vavrinka match point. Um, they play this long rally, and um, and Vavrinka is just crushing the ball. Djokovic has to make oh, two yes, r- yes. really good defensive gets, and then Vavrinka slices, comes in, and Djokovic just rolls the backhand across court past him. Um, and that was the only return of the shirt riffing celebration afterwards that we've seen. So I think um, th- that was an incredible match point. Maybe maybe the best I've seen. Yeah, it- it's interesting because you mentioned that. Like now, I remember it. Um... And I do remember, like when you when you say Rinko's crushing the backhands, it's it's, it's it, you you totally mean it in the sense that like, I couldn't even believe that Djokovic was getting those backhands. It's yeah, it was an unbelievable gets and like all the way and and in a way that like you, you see Medvedev playing today and you think like how does he get shots back like this? But like I mm-hmm. I think that that point Djokovic is just on another level that we we yeah. have yet to see from a, um, another generation of players. Um, and that's not to say also that, for example, Nadal and Federer had their, their incredible gets as well. Just just remember the classic 2009 point where they had like sweet um, defensive shots. But like, I mean, the the way that Djokovic just kept ball in play and just found a way to win, to hit a winner when everything seemed lost was definitely like a classic Djokovic sign of, you know, how do you do that, you know? Yeah, his... His flexibility is just out of this world, yeah. and sometimes like a player will hit an overhead, and he'll make sort of a jumping get and just nick it with the with the top of his strings and get a lob back in, and then get the rally back to neutral and end up winning it. He he did that at the start of the third set in that Vavrinka match, I think. And so I think while Nadal's defense might be as good overall, Djokovic mm. with with the dazzling flexible gets, um, doing the half split and like putting his hand down on the court and then popping back up immediately. It's, I've never seen anything like yeah. it. Like Medvedev, Medvedev's a great defender, but he's, he's not on that level. Prime Djokovic could do that and he could do the long rallies and he could do it for five hours. Yes. Yeah. Which he yeah. did. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Several times. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I'm just remembering, um, the 2012 Australian semi against Murray, which is like four hours and 50 minutes. I remember they played like some 30 or 40 shot rallies in oh, that. Yeah. And Murray like, is going to make you play shots like forever. Yeah. And, and Murray is the type of player that like, and Djokovic probably knows this better than anyone because they have a very similar type of uh, play. Um, mm-hmm. And Djokovic knew, like you could see like from the beginning that like, if you, if you try to make a move and like try to go a little bit, um, aggressive and try to hit the net, like try to go to the net a little too early. Murray's mm-hmm. is definitely going to make you pay big time. So, yeah. like, it- when you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you found the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It was such a tentative match. Like they were, Djokovic has definitely, obviously, like for for the longest time, like Djokovic has been more of the aggressor rather than Murray. Mm-hmm. But he knows that, like, you you cannot just be aggressive and just hope for the best because Murray's gonna make you have no hopes. <laughs> you know, if, yeah. Because and he was he was a good Murray. He was a good version of Murray. Though. Oh yeah. So it wasn't it wasn't an easy match for sure. So yeah. Yeah, yeah, Djokovic was down break point three times at five all in the fifth. On the second one, they played a twenty nine shot rally and uh and it was neutral. And then Djokovic gets um gets a look at a forehand, rips it down the line, it's almost on the line and it forces the error. And uh and I think Federer talked about this sort of at the same time as he talked about like a match point save, and he says like Djokovic just does these things and you can't really explain them, mm. but he does them consistently. And yeah, yeah he I I can't really come up with a great word to describe it besides magic because I think it it just seems impossible that someone would be able to do something like that under such pressure more than once. But he does them every year, really. Yeah, it just seems to he just seems to like find the zone for like one shot. That is, yeah. like he's not in the zone for like thirty shots, and then like for this one yeah. shot, he decides he's gonna click in and just like click back into like yeah. human mode. It's like it's why would you do that? And uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, do you remember his um, 2012 Shanghai match against Murray? He was um, 100. He, he was down five seven four five love thirty. Murray was serving for the match, and yeah. then he, he he wins this epic point with a tweener, and then he just like raises his fist and smiles, and you think something's going to happen, and then he yeah. saves five match points and wins and the match. Wins and the match. I, I remember yeah. I was watching that match. Um, I think I ended up having to go to sleep afterwards, but like I was watching mm. this match like uh, late in the night and. I watched the first and the second set, and I watched until Djokovic won the fir- the second set. And that was um, one of the first times that I was looking at that match, and I was like, something inside of me just was telling me, Djokovic is just going to win this, isn't he? You know? And even though he was down match point, I was like, he's just going to win this. And like he wins, the t- yeah. the, he wins that point with the tweener. Djokovic, uh, not Djokovic, but Murray didn't play a very great point um, uh, after the lob. Like, he should have... He should have gone to the net and he would have been able to finish uh, yeah. the point for sure. Um, but not, regardless, Djokovic won that point and you know what happens next. And yeah, I was watching this match and I went to sleep after the the, the third set and I was like, I'm going to wake up and Djokovic is going to have won this match for yeah. sure. And lo and behold, this is exactly what happened. And, you know, this just, I would say probably like um, maybe five years back, uh, I wouldn't have believed that one. I was like, oh yeah, this is over. Yeah. This is Murray's. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I I remember that point. I watched it recently, and um, and Djokovic's tweener was really good. I remember not because of the direction, but it was so deep that yes. Murray had to almost half volley it off the baseline, and then Djokovic forehand down the line, then drop shot winner. And and you're totally right. He just has 
he just has this mode that he can lock into. Like, he can play terribly for a set and a half, really. And then, match point down, he can lock in, win a tight set, and then win the third set going away. I remember, um, in, in 2020, he didn't finish 2020 all that well, but he still has that mode. We saw it against team in their, mm-hmm. in their semifinal. Djokovic saved four match points, I think, and won the second set. And credit to team, he found a way to win the third after that incredible disappointment. But Djokovic yeah. still has that mode where he, he hit a forehand uh, inside in, winner right on the line. And it's like, how do you do this? Because if your arm seizes up for a millisecond, you miss that shot. So. Oh yeah, no, for sure. There's a, a perfect state of relaxation of commitment. That it, there's no way the Djokovic didn't work like a lot in like his mental, like his the yep. mental side of his game. And I don't even know like what's the secret if there is one. But like he, he it, does exactly. have that, yeah one. Yeah the, yeah, the way I think of it is, we see this so often often from Djokovic that I have to think he knows something. <laughs> that other players just don't know like yeah. i'm not sure what it is maybe it's how to stay calm maybe it's maybe it's how to stay loose but he he knows the secret maybe he doesn't even know exactly what it is but yeah like it, it it's a quality that no one else on tour has yeah i mean n- not so much that to do it so often as he does i guess <laughs> yeah yeah and um, i want to i want to say something because um as we know, like, uh, and I've said, like, one of the one of my things about the the, the goat argument that we had was the fact that Nadal mm-hmm. has such a stronghold on clay, um, yeah, and he, he dominates it so incredibly, um, much more than anybody else has ever done on the surface ever before. Um, and I guess, like, my question for you now is, like, if there were more, um, if the if the tour was more geared at, not geared toward towards clay, but something a little bit more balanced, mm-hmm. say, for example, if we had the um, five not five like say say four four of the uh, uh four of the nine masters and thousands were yeah. on clay and then another grand slam was also on clay do you think okay. Djokovic would still be the holder of this record the number one for, for, mm. oof i don't know i think i think probably not just because if nadal is winning two majors like a bunch of years it would be really tough but I I think he'd still be at number one a lot. Probably he. I think 2011 he would still have that amazing stretch there, and um, so no, I don't think he would have as many as he does now. I think if there are that many, if that much of the tour is on Klein Nadal, gets it for another hundred weeks at least. But I I, I think he would find a way to get his wins in at least. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. Ooh, what do you think? I mean, it's it's obviously like a lot of what ifs, and there's no way to know what would happen. Yeah. And there there's two things that I would uh, be interested in in maybe talking or whatever, like seeing what people say on Twitter or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's one is the fact that Djokovic would probably have to adapt his game a little bit more to clay, and he would have yeah, more chances to do so uh, because there's been there will be more tournaments, and he wouldn't be so you know you know I gotta focus on hardcore because that's where it's at, mm-hmm. you know. Um, and you would have a little bit more periods of adaptation, and you you wouldn't have uh, the amount of fast courts that we have nowadays. So I guess Djokovic would have a little bit more time to try and adapt and find his range on clay as well. Not that he didn't, yeah. because he almost beat Nadal like at his near prime, I would say, like in 2013. But Absolutely. like he would have had more chances to do it and probably get get gain a little bit more confidence and things like that. Maybe mm-hmm. wouldn't have changed it all that much, the amount of Grand Slams and Nadal wins. And the second thing would be the fact that would Nadal still be 
as injured for the second half of the season. Say, for example, if 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 uh, instead of the Australian Open, you'd be like Roland Garros and the U.S. Open were clay tournaments, right? There would be a possibility that Nadal would potentially be injured for a couple of these as well. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, it's a bunch of all, all those what ifs, right? So there's also the chance that Nadal would just be like, "Yeah, forget it. I'm just gonna play the clay uh-huh. tournaments for the rest of my life, and that's it." Yeah, he never steps on a hard court anymore, and that's. No, that's fact, but you know yeah. you, you don't you don't know if that that would be the case, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I I would be interested to know how that would affect Nadal's injuries. I think clay is the easiest surface for his knees, so I think he might w- with more of it on the mm-hmm. tour, it, it might be they might be less frequent. But besides that, I would be fascinated to look at what the Djokovic Nadal rivalry on clay would look like. I really miss the matches they used to have in 2014 and before because mm-hmm. now. It's become pretty lopsided, but they had some fantastic battles on clay. Djokovic um, has beaten him seven times on clay. Six six of those were in straight sets, including mm-hmm. the 2015 Roland Garros. So I think if Djokovic has more of an opportunity to adapt his game on clay, I think that could be a really, really great rivalry because he matches up well with Nadal. Yeah. And if and if he gets more practice, uh, maybe commits more to the surface, I, I still think Nadal would lead, but I, I would be really interested to know how that rivalry would, yeah. would look. Yeah. They probably would have played like more than half of their matches on clay, I would say. Yeah, they, they could play forty times on it. I think if that much yeah. of the tour is on clay, yeah, yeah, it's true. <laughs> and, I mean, they, they played twenty-five times yeah. on it as it is, uh, eight times at Roland Garros, I think. So yeah, yeah if, if you add another major on clay, mm. then yeah, yeah. One thing that's for sure is that Federer would probably not have the three hundred and ten weeks at number one, right? But uh. I don't know. Like things would definitely look a lot different if uh, there were more um, clay tournaments. Even though there's yeah. there's quite a decent amount. Like there's one Grand Slam and then three Masters. Th- three Masters. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, it's there's definitely a, a lot of uh, imbalance towards hard court, um, mm-hmm. which is something that uh, and as I said, like uh, I mentioned the U.S. Open. It's because I actually think that it would be interesting if the U.S. Open turned to clay again. Mm-hmm. I, I don't think it wouldn't have been. It would have been a bad idea. The only thing that would be bad is because they would have to. Um, changed the entire um, U.S. Open series <laughs> because yeah, it's, yeah, exactly. it's all based in hard court. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I yeah, I don't think it would make a ton of sense because most of the Masters 1000s are still hard, and I would want that to reflect sort of the the majors as well. Oh, but yeah, 100%. We'll, I think sometimes we talk about maybe the World Tour Finals having a rotating surface. I think it'd be interesting if a major had a rotating surface that way. Hmm. Like um, a third of the time, it can be exactly what it is now, but then sometimes. You have a clay one and a, and a grass one. I think grass especially, since grass mm. fills a lot less of the calendar than the other two surfaces. That could be interesting. Yeah. Uh, the one thing about rotating surfaces that I think about is that it it probably would cost a ridiculous amount of money to oh, do it. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because you, you have to it's enti- essentially change the entire structure of your court every mm-hmm. year. And I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't be sustainable at all in any case. Oh, no, not at all. It would yeah. be it would be ridiculously expensive. I don't know if you remember the exhibition Nadal and Federer played Battle of the Surfaces. Yeah, so yeah, half yeah. play, half that that court cost 1.7 million dollars to make. I think if I remember right. Yeah. And so you would be reconstructing not just a center court, but an entire park. Like imagine, mm-hmm. imagine Melbourne Park changing to grass courts or something. Like it would. It would be a ridiculously big operation. So I, I, it's a nice idea, but I don't see it happening. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of having an. It's it's almost like having an Olympics every year. 
at your country. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you have to build the infrastructure all over again every year. That would mm-hmm. be pretty insane. Although, an, a, a thing that would be really, very interesting to see would be a Battle of the Surfaces tournament. <laughs> oh, that would be so <laughs> that would cool. Be really, yeah. That would be fascinating. Yeah. It, it could be like an exhibition maybe with like eight players. So that way they wouldn't need more than one or two courts. That, yeah. That, that could be so much fun. Um, I, I remember even with the ridicu- the super expensive court, Federer lost the Battle of the Surfaces on a bad bounce, I think, on the grass <laughs> side. he I, I think he might have whiffed on match point or, or shanks. Um, but I, that would be a lot of fun. The strategy mm-hmm. would be so interesting to see. Yeah. And I have no idea like how players would come up with uh, playing on this type of circumstances, too, because it's like you have to adapt to a different surface that you're stepping on and how yeah. the surface on the other side reacts to your shots as well because like exactly if if you if you're on clay and you're hitting to grass i think you have an advantage because yeah, you, you could serve in volley uh, yeah because you, you have a, a surface that's actually bouncing really low and like really mm-hmm. quick and when it bounces back to your side you have a lot of time to deal with it so yeah exactly when on, on grass i'm not entirely sure like that that would be the same the only thing that would probably be interesting for federer for example would be that um, the the top spin wouldn't bounce as high, I would say. But yeah. other than that, not much of a, a guess advantage on that on that side, I would say. Yeah, that, that's a great point about having an advantage on the clay side because you would have more time to set up and then just cr- crush shots that would skid on the grass, mm-hmm. and and you could rely on bad bounces, so maybe get into the net as well. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I definitely prefer to be on the clay side, but I. I just think the concept is so fascinating. I'd, yeah. I'd love to see that, but I doubt any organization will be likely to shell out a million and I mean, almost $2 million. If you, if you consider just how long it took for Wimbledon to apply uh, to get it into a tiebreak on the oh, on yeah. the fifth set, like you can imagine, like nobody's going to be like, hey, let's just make like a, the craziest type of thing on the like, contour. Right. Yeah. Unless, <laughs> like, you, should probably, you should probably just call Muratoglu and ask him if he'd be down. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'd rather see that than UTS. So. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you should have done that instead. It would probably have been like a lot more lucrative. Yeah, exactly. Like, j- ditch the the battle Pokemon cards and uh, let, <laughs> let's see uh, double surfaces. Yeah. So, yeah. So, um, is there anything else that you want to add to the, the Djokovic record? Well, let's 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 build up a little bit on this, like just because like goat, goat arguments are so fun to discuss sure, with, the, yeah. with the right people. Uh-huh. Uh, um, do you think Djokovic can break uh, twenty majors? Yes, I think he will. I think whether he will catch Nadal is another question. Mm. How many do you think Nadal is going to win still? Uh, so I think I said on Twitter a, a few, maybe a week ago. I think Nadal will win 22, Djokovic will win 21. But I think I think they could each win another, so it'd be 23-22. I think Djokovic could possibly get beyond that. I feel like he has a higher ceiling than Nadal in terms of how many he can win. Mm. I'm I'm just not sure if he'll get there. Yeah, it's a it's a tough question. Wh- what do you think? Um I I was saying like in our chat, like I have a feeling that it's a uh, in a spectrum between uh, 0 to 7 to another 7 grand slams. So like I would probably lean towards like some like like four to five, like you said, like probably twenty one, mm-hmm. twenty two. But I could very well also see like a dip in level that makes him win like two more and that's it. Because mm-hmm. even though he's he's probably the clear favorite to Wimbledon, I, I think things yeah. can change quickly enough and you know um 
you never really know, right? So it's not getting any younger, mm-hmm. even though he's like showing great signs in Australia, even with the yeah. abdominal strain. Um, he could he could win many more slams still like another i would say probably seven is a very very big ask but yeah. some like four to five i think it's a is a safe spot for him for well, mm-hmm. for us to predict to him for him to win yeah agreed and and we say he's not getting any younger but he did play a better final at the australian in 2021 than he did in 2020 and he was hurt true. in 2021 so that's true so i think he'll get another couple of those um what he'll, he should get at least another wimbledon the U.S. Open, I'm less optimistic about for him just because of his record there. Mm-hmm. Um, he so, but I I think the Australian Open and Wimbledon, he could get three or four just across those two. Yeah. So yeah, the, here's here's the thing that I I think right now is that Djokovic, he's probably thinking so hard about Roland Garros, like oh, he hasn't yeah. like he hasn't thought about it in since since he won it in 2016, mm-hmm. because. Now that he's got the the record of the, the world number one record settled and and um Federer is never gonna catch up, let's be honest. Like he's right, he's, no. he's already no considering a retire retirement, so like I mean, it's over. Um so he's, this record's gonna be his for maybe ten years now. Yeah. So I think he's definitely eyeing double career Grand Slam and yeah. uh double double career Grand Slam and surface slam, by the way. Um yeah. And the number of number of slams, which probably he's thinking more Roland Garros first because it's the most immediate that mm. he can do, and then he can focus on the on the number. So yeah, yeah this is what I think yeah. right now. Yeah, I think he has two paths to goat. Basically, I think he can end with the most. But I, if I'm if I'm giving Djokovic advice, I would say Djokovic, if you win Roland Garros again, you don't need the most. You could. <laughs> If Nadal finishes with one more than you, but you get another Roland Garros and he doesn't get another Australian, it doesn't matter. You you had the better career. Um, you won. You you got the double surface slam. So, yeah, I and and that was partly why I was so disappointed with his performance in the twenty twenty final because it was such an opportunity there. So I almost yeah. wonder. I I think his window was closing. So I almost wonder if he has another year like that, it might be smarter to accept that. Maybe it's just not going to happen, and hmm. and focus more on the other three. Yeah, yeah, that's for sure. Let's enjoy tennis for another week, and um, thanks for being this quick chat with me, Owen. And yeah, uh, of course, it, it was fun to return to the goat debate for a little bit. Yeah, for sure. And uh, yeah, just follow us on tennis and bagels. Don't unfollow us. Uh, follow <laughs> Owen at Tennis Nation, and I at Rollenberg Andre. Vansh was not here, but he's definitely. Um, the stats maker of the group he's always in chat chatting with us so he's he's with us in spirit uh, mm. so Vansh uh, look forward to talk to you tomorrow and uh, yeah follow Vansh at Vansh V2K and we'll see you guys tomorrow I think if I can edit the episode fast enough so in anyway in any case see ya
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.